Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. We've been following the Apostle Paul throughout his travels in the Mediterranean world, and most recently we've come to Acts chapter 19 and have seen the Apostle Paul in the city of Ephesus. We've been talking about some of the uh, things that occurred while he was at the city of Ephesus, including his communication back with the church at Corinth, where he had spent a considerable amount of time on his second missionary journey. We've been looking at uh, Paul's letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. It's really probably the second letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth from the city of Ephesus. And last time we looked at chapter 1 through 5, And as we begin today, I just want to go through uh, a little bit more on the end of chapter 5, and then we'll look at chapters 6 through 11 together. At the end of chapter 5, we've been going through a discussion of Paul addressing sexual immorality in the church at Corinth. In chapter 5 and verse 1, we read about how there is sexual immorality, it says, among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And in talking about this, we noted the strong language that Paul uses that this individual should be removed from among them. In verse uh, 2, that this individual should be handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved uh, in verse 5. They are, uh, this person is compared with leaven uh, that infects the entire uh, loaf or the entire uh, loaf of bread in verses 6 through 8. In verses 9 through 13, they're told not to associate with sexually immoral people and not to associate with any believer who's guilty of sexual immorality or greed in verse 11. They are to purge the evil person from among them in verse 13. Such strong language from Paul coming here in chapter 5 tells us that sexual immorality cannot be tolerated within the body of Christ. This is not just uh, in reference to the specific adultery that's taking place here, but really extends to all forms of sexual deviation, and he's going to talk about that a little bit more fully in chapter 6 and beyond. Since the only God-approved sexual union is that of husband and wife within a lifelong covenantal relationship, everything else is immoral. And so in reading about the sexual immorality that took place at the city of Corinth, as Paul addresses it here in chapter 5 and beyond, uh, we should remember that sexual immorality uh, really has wide-sweeping effects within the church. And we're going to see some of that as we continue on into chapter 6. 
Now, as we move into chapter 6, Paul addresses the issue of some within the church taking others to perhaps the city magistrates or other officials to judge their disputes. His response is to say that this should not be the case for several reasons. Uh, the church, he says, is fully capable of handling issues that one believer might have with another. After all, believers will judge both the world and angels in the future, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 6. Certainly, they could handle the affairs of this life. Secondly, he says it would be better for them as individuals to be wronged by others and suffer the wrong than to bring shame to Christ by attacking each other in court, in verses 7 and 8. It provides a very negative example for the world around us. If they see believers in the body of Christ uh, biting and bickering and, and devouring one another uh, in courtroom settings, in legal settings, they'll conclude that believers in Christ are no different than anyone else in the rest of the world. It would be better, even if perhaps it was in my own situation, if someone in the church had acted unjustly toward me or had wronged me in some way, it would be better for me just simply to accept that rather than to go through all these legal proceedings and through doing so, drag the name of Jesus Christ through the mud. Better for us personally just to accept that we've been wronged and entrust ourselves to God that he will handle the situation. Paul then turns back to talking about sexual immorality directly in the second half of, of chapter 6. He says that our very bodies belong to Christ and so should not be used for our own sinful desires. Sexual immorality, he says in verse 18, is a sin against one's own body. The background for these verses is likely the temple prostitution that was rampant in Corinth at the time. The Acro-Corinth, or upper city of Corinth, had temple uh, dedicated to Aphrodite, and rumors of perhaps up to a thousand temple prostitutes, both male and female, uh, who would not only perform their deeds at the top of the Acro-Corinth in the temple, but at night would go down from uh, the mountain into the city and uh, perform their services with the people there. It was very commonplace uh, in the city of Corinth. Verses 19 through 20 of chapter 6 emphasize how the Christian's body is a temple for the Holy Spirit and should not be united in any kind of sinful union, particularly a sexually immoral union. Now we come to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and in chapter 7, in the first five verses, Paul uh, contradicts the norm of Corinthian society with their sexual immorality, and he says instead that it is good for a man not to have sexual relationship with a woman, uh, meaning, I think what is implied here is beyond his marriage relationship. It was very common in Corinth for individuals who were married to have a wife for childbearing, but then make use of prostitutes for pleasure outside of that relationship. Paul says this is not the way that God intended uh, for human relationships to be. He's encouraging marital faithfulness, which is the only God-approved form of sexual union. 
he encourages the uh, unmarried and widows in the next series of verses to stay single, which he later explains uh, more fully toward the end of the chapter. We'll come back to this in verses 27 through 40 in just a moment. Those who are married and become believers are addressed in verses 10 through 17. Paul says they should not seek to end their marriage to an unbeliever, but can witness to them of the gospel of Jesus in verses 14 through 16. However, if the unbelieving spouse wishes to leave, they should not prevent them. They, they are then free of their commitment to those individuals. In verses 17 through 26, Paul encourages believers to stay in the condition in which they were called for the most part. The circumcised should not seek to reverse their circumcision, he says. The uncircumcised should not be circumcised. Slaves should not be overly concerned about their slavery, although he does say very explicitly that they should seek freedom if they can. Uh, free persons should not sell themselves into slavery since they've already belonged to a master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then following verse 26, he returns to marital issues uh, with those who are betrothed uh, to be married. Perhaps uh, this equates somewhat to our modern engagement period. Uh, he says they do not sin if they married, uh, if they go ahead with the marriage process, but their attention would be divided and they would have concern not only for themselves now, but also for their spouse. This is especially the case in light of the opposition to Christianity that was rising at this time in the Mediterranean world. He finishes this chapter by saying that those whose spouse dies are free to remarry, but in Paul's estimation, they would do well at this point to remain single, probably looking back again to what he calls this present distress, uh, some opposition to Christianity throughout the Mediterranean world. The opposition would only increase in the first century from this point on. Now, in chapters 8 through 10, uh, these several chapters deal with issues of meat sacrificed to idols and whether it was okay for believers in Christ to take this meat and eat it. Now, on the one hand, Paul says that an idol is nothing in chapter 8. So it makes no difference whether to eat this meat or not in verses 4 through 6 and in and, and verse 8 of chapter 8. Yet some don't understand this, Paul says, and if they were to see another believer, someone who claims to follow Christ, uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols, they might conclude that it was okay to participate in idol worship in this way. Paul says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 13. So it is not simply about whether he has the right to participate in eating this food. He wants to watch out for those who are uh, perhaps not as spiritually strong or mature in the faith. Paul talks in chapter 9 about how although he has the liberty and even the right, perhaps, to eat whatever he wants, among other rights as a believer— he has willingly sacrificed those rights in order to make sure that the gospel can be presented without any stumbling blocks. And so in chapter 9 and verses 19 through 23, this is what Paul will say uh, 
about this issue. Verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." Paul continues in chapter 10 to point his audience back to the Old Testament wilderness wanderings. And so he warns them about falling into immorality and idolatry as the people of Israel did in the wilderness. He then says that while they are free to eat anything, the circumstances under which they eat it guide whether they should eat or refuse. So he says, in the case where someone explicitly tells them that this meat has been sacrificed to idols, they should abstain, not for the sake of their own conscience, but for the conscience of others, so that the conscience of the other person might speak to them. They might feel uh, some kind of conviction about sacrifice or, or participating in this food that has been sacrificed to idols. He finishes up this section by saying, All things should be done for the glory of God, verse 31, and without giving offense to any, verse 32 of chapter 10, so that the gospel will not be hindered, verse 33. That's the key point here in these chapters. We don't ever want our Christian liberty to hinder the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there's anything that I'm doing as a Christian, that others might see and say, oh, if I, he's doing that, I can participate in that too. And it leads them into sin. If that's something true of my life, I would never want to participate in that thing, whatever it might be. And I think there are a wide variety of applications in our lives today. Now, in chapter 11, Paul discusses public worship and the uncovering of men's heads and the covering of women's hair while they're praying or prophesying. These public acts demonstrate a submission to authority within the church that reflects Christ's submission uh, to God the Father. In verses 17 through 34, abuses of the Lord's Supper are discussed by Paul, and this is where we will pick up our discussion again in our next session. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partners.